Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, my friends. Awesome show today. Our guests for this radio show are Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, co-hosts of the Animal Spirits podcast and part of the Ritholz Wealth Management crew. In today's episode, we touch on the Future Proof Wealth Festival, which will be in Huntington Beach, California, right down the road from us, from September 11th to the 14th. All three of us will be there. Come along and join us for Broncos on Monday Night Football. I'll even buy you a beer. Come join me out in the surf. Take you out for a paddle. We also touch on trend following, producing content in a digital and social world, Twitter, and much, much more. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson. Michael and Ben, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Are we are we happy to be here? So we're very happy to be here. Who, who am I asking? I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Meb. For the listeners who aren't familiar, a couple of podcast hosts that run Animal Spirits. I was going to do a rate your room, but I think, you know, Ben is kind of destroying you, Michael. You have a giant purple square. Is like, is this a piece of art? Is this like a weird Banksy modern art in the background? What do you, what do you have going on? It's a sound uh, downer. I okay. just made up that word. What is it? What, what are you you're taking down to sound? It's, it's a sound remover. Sound, sound, sound proofer. There it is. My brain's broken this morning. Sorry. You at least covered it with a uh, some sort of art or like a, a Nick's poster or something. So Ben Ben gets the winner on the uh, on the the rate your room three Stooges. A lot of people probably guys know you guys as the kind of cheers of podcasting for the young cohort who doesn't know what cheers is. It's like uh, uh, a show from the 80s where a bunch of people gather in a bar and just talk shop and you get to look over their shoulder and listen in on what's going on in the world. But ba- basically a bunch of alcoholics at that point. Um, I don't know what the modern version would be of cheers, but it's really well done and surprisingly funny, surprisingly humorous. Um, I'll take that backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly you I mean it's finance you know like finance yeah, is hard to find that much humor but you guys do a great job um but that's not your day job what, what, what's y'all I mean maybe it is your day job at this point uh, it's kind of part of it yeah we but, uh, we used to just get on the phone with one another like 12 times a day because Michael lives in New York and I live in Grand Rapids and we would talk about the research we're seeing and stuff that's going on fintwit and what's going on in the markets and Josh and Michael were sharing an office and Josh said at one point, I'm sick of listening to this. Just why don't you guys just take this stupid conversation you have 12 times a day, and make it a podcast. And that's what we did. But like you, Meb, content is part of our business. So so you probably get the question too. Like, how do you run an asset management firm if you're producing content all the time? And it's like, well, content is is part of it, right? Well, and you guys, you know, your team have two of the kind of OGs. I mean, Barry started blogging like when it was on like DOS or something. He's old enough, right? When? Yeah. When did 19, he actually yeah. start? No, he started in, I'm going to guess like 2005. No, it might have been early, but he was earlier. Saying, he, he said at one point, 
it would take him a half hour to write a post and then a half hour to code it in HTML because there was no, no such thing as WordPress or Tumblr or any, you know, anything that was yeah. easy to create at the time. He, um, you know, and, and a lot of the kind of even the 1.0 version of this was if you look at the so many people that used to write for the street.com and realmoney.com, there used to be a columnist conversation, which was sort of the Twitter before Twitter. And yes, you. so I was a part of this and you had to write these your comments in HTML, which is preposterous, right? Like, I mean, my God. And uh, I actually don't know if this is well known. I actually got fired from um, real money, which is funny because I didn't get paid. So I just got evicted, whatever the right word would be. What did uh, you do? They broke up with you. Because as a quant, you guys know me, like I feel a journalistic integrity to cite my sources instead of just like everyone does now, just on Twitter, just stealing them and reposting them. So often when I would write something, I would cite citation it, right? And then like hyperlink, hey, this is from here. This is from here. Well, a lot of the research was original research. And so often it would cite back to my websites and they're like, you're just trying to drive visitors back to your website, to your blog. And I was like, no, you idiots. But anyway, if you look at the roster, the, you know, the old school magazine, like letterhead, whatever they put at the, the beginning of all the writers, it's, it's actually a pretty amazing group of people. But Barry uh, was certainly one of those. And Josh found his own footing in the, in the blogging community too. I mean, did, does anyone actually visit y'all's blogs anymore? Do you even track? I looked the other day, I went and looked at my blog role. Do you remember those? Like you could write, I don't oh, know yeah. if you guys have those on your website, but you like list a bunch of sites you also go to. And it was like two thirds are gone. I think. At this well, point. you, I was going to bring this up later, but you, you were to post a few years ago about like, forget about alpha. How about just surviving is half the battle. And I think you equated it to like all the half the bloggers that started when, when we first did and you started before us, Meb, but half of the people that we used to interact with and have blogs are, are gone now. And, and that just sticking around is, is half the battle sometimes. Ben still writes like five times a week. I don't know how, but I think Ben might have the most traffic out of any financial blogger. That's great. Well, it was funny because way back in the day when I used to look into the analytics of this stuff, I haven't looked in years, but um, there was a great widget you could put on. And, and I think Google Analytics does this now, but shows you exactly the specific Google search term that someone used to hit your site at various points of the day. And I would kind of scroll through it on occasion, but just because of the Google algorithms, um, it was really funny. Like some of them would be like Bill Gross's mustache. And someone Googled <laughs> that and landed on my website. I'm like, A, why is someone Googling this? <laughs> B, why did it come to my website? Um, you know, just the optimization is pretty funny. I used, to, I used to look at my traffic. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to admit this literally every day. I think it's probably normal, right? Like when you first on. start, you have to. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't look at my traffic like rarely ever at this point anymore, but I've also... I've, I've lost a little bit of a love for writing. And I think it's, it's not that it's just podcasting is it's so much easier. It's so much more fun and delightful and enjoyable. And writing has never been easy for me. It's always been difficult. And I just prefer talking than writing. Well, it hits in a different way too. I mean, an example is, you know, we used to write academic papers and academic paper you submit to like a journal and then it goes through peer review. And if you're lucky, it comes out in like two years. And now, you know, as, as you could just throw them up online and, you know, you get peer review of hundreds of thousands of millions of people telling you how dumb you are, right? Like that's the real peer review. Was your trend paper your very first paper? Yeah. Ever wrote? And that was actually a happy accident. I didn't, I didn't mean to write that paper, but Wait, I don't uh, know. I don't know the backstory on this. So I was in my twenties and wrote a the equivalent of the CFA designation for technicians was called CMT. And they used to have three levels, just like CFA, but level three included a lot of material that I considered to be kind of voodoo. You know, it was like a lot of, I mean, I'm not, I might uh, offend you guys here. So apologies, but it was like Fibonacci or, you know, all these things that, that had like no real justification, but they're like, this is, you know, it's like the um, nutraceutical world now. It's like, hey, if you take uh, ginkgo, like you're, it improves your brain function. If you take vitamin Q, it's, you know, protects your heart. And you're like, well, there's no real, like, that's not true, right? Like there's no, like it's not, it might, but it probably doesn't. And so uh, it was, it was a similar situation with a lot of the technical analysis. I look at it and be like, well, you're saying this, but you know, like there's not, no real there there. That having been said, I believe in a lot of the kind of quantitative TA 
on and on behavioral side. I think it's a gym, but, but a lot of the level three was garbage. And so they used to have the ability to write a paper and pass, skip the level three. And I was, but then they announced they're doing away with it. And I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not taking this test. And so it was like December 30th, I submitted just like the most generic abstract. And I was, I just put in something. I'm like, what can I write about? I was like, I'll write something about trend. Ended up writing this paper, published in the journal Wealth Management. Cause I was like, I've written it. What do I do now? Like, there's no point in just sitting on it. Um, got published. The timing was right because it was right before the global financial crisis. It was a simple trend following paper, a, fu- a couple funny side notes. Um, and apologies, if my, my audience has probably heard this, but if you guys haven't, um, I sent it to about 10 people that I looked up, like the Mount Rushmore of my world at that point in my 20s, spam them essentially, but sent them to people you guys would recognize. Uh, and I can name some of the nice responses from like Rob or not. You know, he's just like this random email, this shitty paper, first draft by this bait. I mean, come on. He's like, look, this is like a, a good idea. Like the math and the quant is there, but like, this is like a, you know, C paper. Because <laughs> he's the editor of Financial Advice, Analyst Journal, like the gold star. And he's like, you know, you can clean it up and then, you know, it, it, it could be a good paper. And then I got some other responses from guys, you know, I can tell you later where they're like, this paper is worthless. <laughs> like the exact language. They're like, this is the dumbest thing. Like on and just like, out, not even like constructive criticism, like really mean. Um, and I was like, wow, like you, you didn't have to be that ruthless. Like you don't have to be a dick. Just be like, you know, not for me. I don't agree with it. Like move on. Anyway, I got a couple of those. But anyway, that also kind of informed my view of responding to people, you know, particularly the younger crowd and emails over the years, I try to take the high road if I can and respond. Um, anyway. So Meb, so I, so as I said, like I've, I've sort of a uh, little bit lost a lot for writing, a little bit like lost the time. There's not enough hours in the day. You asked us earlier, what is our day job? And Morgan was just in here before, and he was talking to me about how much my time is spent on content and helping to manage uh, the RIA and my schedule is chaotic. My desktop looks like my brain. It's just sort of messy. And it's really hard to untangle. And I haven't really given much thought, like what percentage of time, because at this point, Ben and I have a podcast on Monday. I've got one with Josh on Tuesday, Ben and I have another one on Wednesday. And then Josh and I have one on Thursday. So it is a lot. It's pretty much seven days a week uh, at this point or, or, or close to it. And I can do that because my kids are still, still young because there's still enough hours in the day, but you can't do everything. And so for me, writing is getting the short end of the stick. And I got to tell you, I don't really miss it that much. Well, I mean, if you think about it, and we talk about this uh, with advisors all the time who are talking about content, you know, I feel like I need to put out a podcast or blog or something and say, look, this has been going on for 100 years. You know, it used to be giant businesses in our space have been built on content. Now, Edelman was radio, Fisher was direct mail and magazine. you know, uh, you could go on Dave Ramsey, whose business does a shocking amount of revenue per year. Um, I think it's like 300 million or something last I checked. My New Year's resolution for the summer, uh, whatever you would call news resolution in July, is to convince Dave, Dave Ramsey uh, to adopt ETFs versus um, these mutual funds uh, that he likes so much. But I'll go uh, that. yeah, that's we'll, we'll check back in December. Um, but, you know, it's just reaching people wherever they are. And so, you know, Michael, I mean, what, 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 Badnick, what you touched on, I think, is an important point, which is, you know, things have changed in, in hitting people where they want to receive content, whether it's TikTok, it could be holograms in five years, who knows. But um, it's also the attention span is, is condensed. You know, it's it's hard. We, we reach different people through it's like I think there's almost a generational thing. Josh was the first one who made a push into YouTube for us. And Michael, I think I'm, maybe I'm speaking for here. You and I were a little more skeptical about YouTube, but we, we have people who watch the podcast and watch YouTube shows and it's, it's more of a younger audience. And then I have, you mentioned, blog. I still blog a lot. I, I just kind of find writing cathartic, but I'll, I'll get one or two emails a week from boomers being like, Hey, I'm trying to print out your blog. I can't <laughs> find the print button anymore. How do I do it? And then podcast, I think is, is probably more like a, Gen X maybe kind of thing. It seems like if, if, if we're putting people into little style buckets here, 
But the thing that I always tell advisors who ask if they should produce content, it's like, you have to really like doing this. Like we, we all, before we even got together, Ritholtz, we're doing this on our own because we enjoyed it and we liked it. Meb, you've been doing this for how long? When did you start? 2007 or something, probably? Well, so let's see. The writing and the blog and the um, the, the papers would have been like, oh, six, maybe books kind of the same time. Podcast was kind of, you know, it's funny because for us, the podcast, we delayed because we we're listening to Barry's and, and kind of the Gen 1. But for the longest time, I was like, I wanted to do like a video course. Like I wanted in my head, I was like more instructional, kind of like a master class sort of setup. But I was like, oh, that's gonna be so much work, you know, because because right now you can buy a camera, mic, Zoom, and it's almost plug and play. But five, 10 years ago, it wasn't like that. It was kind of the audio, the technical side was daunting. And so I was like, oh, that's so much work. But then we pulled the audience. I was like, would you rather have a, a podcast or, or a very highly produced, well done video. And it was like 95% said podcasts. I consider you G1 a financial podcast. You were after Barry, but were you before Patrick or around the same time? Yeah, it was like version two, um, kind of. And then, then kind of like it became a little more mainstream. So we were early, but, um, you know, I, I, it's funny because I still think despite the evolution of this space, I still think there's a ton of ideas and models that haven't been really tried in the podcasting space that I think there's a lot of opportunity for. I mean, there's the general conversational like we're having, but I think there's a lot of ideas that haven't taken hold and maybe they're stupid, stupid ideas, but we started ours in 2017. And at the time the joke was everyone has a podcast and now these guys do too. But my thing is for people who really want to do it, who cares what other people think or it's the same thing with a Remember, We all, we all wrote a book when we first started blogging, right? Everyone kind of had a book to start, some more than others, but... The week before we started, literally a week before we started, I saw a, a cartoon in the New York Magazine that was actually very funny, but made me feel very self-conscious at the time. It was two people sitting down on the couch and one of them said to the other, I'm thinking of stopping a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, That's oh great. boy. But so, Neb, like uh, the whole content thing. At the end of the day, we are financial advisors. I mean, Ben and I specifically aren't. We're not CFPs. We're not on the front lines on a day-to-day basis. Um, But this is a business in which you ultimately need to convince somebody that you are trustworthy and that you are responsible and that they should hand over their life savings to you. That is a that is no small decision, right? And it's very difficult to get somebody to say yes. And so what we have discovered and knew, I think maybe early on was people, and this is this is Josh's line, people do business with people they like. And so if you, we can have some advantage, nobody has ever said, great blog post, take my money, or you guys are funny, take my money. There's, you know, there still needs to be serious work and diligence and making sure you're competent, all that sort of stuff. But if you could start on first base or maybe even second, it's a huge advantage. But it's also nice that, you know, one of the challenges with like a traditional financial advisor is you get maybe quarterly commentary they'll call you once a year or you can call them obviously, but, or, you know, you play golf together and maybe that relationship is, is very engaged and maybe it's not. And some people don't want it to be, but the nice thing about y'all and the way you have it set up with the content is if people want to opt in on your voice and kind of your messaging, they can. And so they can listen to the show. They can look, read the blogs. They can get kind of as much uh, of the fire hose as they want. And I think, um, that becomes in many ways the sort of product market fit of advisor client fit of culturally right and they may opt out and say god these guys really aren't that funny well we also funny (laughs) oh believe me a lot of people opt out (laughs) but we also look at it as a way of it makes our advisors time more efficient because clients aren't calling them all the time saying what do you think about the markets well if you want to know go listen to josh and cnbc or josh michael's podcast or our podcast or barry's podcast and then the advisor can focus on the client and their specific circumstances. So they don't have to focus on, well, interest rates are rising. What does that mean? You can look at one of our blog posts or podcasts or YouTube videos. And that's the way that we see it is that it makes our advisor's time way more efficient with a client. We've had plenty of clients who, when they first come on, they still want to have a little more trust. And I'm thinking of a couple of specifically that were the first year we would have multiple calls with the clients every quarter or month. And they just pepper us with questions. I remember one time, Michael, they, they finally said, I had all these questions, but you guys are answering them in the podcast now. And I don't need to come to you all the time and have a call. I can listen to the podcast, get most of those questions answered, and then talk to the advisor about my 
taxes and estate planning, whatever it is. And that that's the big thing there with the content. So give us an update on the firm. How many folks y'all got, uh, you know, ballpark number of clients or AUM. I mean, I remember being in the old school version one offices and, and, and kind of, um, encouraging Barry on this independent route. I mean, I, I can't say I was the one that pushed him over the edge, but I remember being like, you know, bro, you got to do this. Come on, make it happen. And, uh, I think everyone's glad that, that, uh, that decision was made, but, um, it's come a long way. Where are you guys now? What's, what's going on? Yeah. So tail of tape, we, uh, we had our partners meeting on Friday and we were just discussing this recently, three out of the 10 people that, that we've, that are now part of the company we've added in the last 12 months. So we've, we've added quite a bit of bodies and we are really like, obviously what people don't see is, is what goes on operationally on a day-to-day basis. We are a well-oiled machine. And so we've got professional people at every, at every level of the organization um, we've got, uh, 12, 1300 families, something like that, almost at 3 billion. The market took a little bit away from us. Uh, but, awesome. but yeah, things are going well. Yeah. That's great guys. And it's funny because most of the people we've hired have been since the pandemic and we're a remote company and most of the people had met. So we had a little get together in Chicago. We did a little operations team meeting in a Cubs game. And I just went down there to be a fly in the wall and I don't know, 75% of the people I'd never met in person. It's all Zoom or Slack or those kind of things. We did the same thing where uh, we had everybody uh, come meet up and they're like, Meb, what's the itinerary? I'm like, there's no itinerary. I just want you guys to like actually be humans and like interact in the real world as opposed to Zoom and Slack. Um, Speaking of real world, you guys are having a big party slash IRL coming out uh, soon in a a couple months. Tell the listeners uh, what's, what's going on. So we are rethinking what a financial conference is. We've all been to a million of them where it's a ballroom and there's four dudes on a stage talking about smart beta and maybe now ESG and factor investing. And I think everyone has more or less had their full share. I think we're all pretty uh, bloated on that format. So what we're doing is we want this to be in the spirit of more of a festival than a financial conference. So what we've done is we are working with uh, the town or the city, I guess, of Huntington Beach, which is almost your backyard, Meb, and it's going to be a festival. So there, we're, we're, we're shutting down a few city blocks. It's going to be on the beach. There's no like of that pay-to-play stuff. It's There will be some stage work, obviously, but it's not going to be stuffy. The reason why conferences are fun to the extent that they are any fun at all is because you get to meet people, you get to hear new ideas, hang out with your friends, grab a cocktail, and that's what we want to really lean into. Yeah, they're also renting out like bars and restaurants where people can have smaller gatherings. And we're going to do kind of like live podcasts on the stage. Like Michael and I were doing a live podcast on the stage and Barry will do one and some more people. So we're trying to do, yeah, do it like that where it's it's more fun. And so, because that's the best part about it now is just getting together and socializing with people. It's not the panels people care about. We're also doing a podcast. And can I claim to get dibs on uh, on Big Boy? As my as my guest before you guys do, there's some cool talent. You know, I was chatting with y'all as organizers and I in Miami and I said, you know, I was like, you guys, there's a um, I'm not going to mention them, but there's a third tier investment bank that has an annual conference here in SoCal uh, that gets great attendance because they have amazing music acts every year. I saw Snoop Dogg play at the Four Seasons and it was like the best show ever. Um <laughs> I've ever, I was like, Snoop's going to mail, Snoop's going to mail this in. It's a bunch of people in suits and he just played the best show ever. Uh, so I was like, who are you guys going to get? I was like, let's talk about this. And then we spent like an hour. Cause they're like, I was like, how much does it cost by the way, anyway, for some of these acts? And they're like, surprisingly, some of these are not that expensive. Like some of the big names are of course, but, and I was like, well, you know, I know I'm good friends, with Warren G's manager. I can get you Warren G if you want like a regulators. A, you know, yeah, um, but uh, let's see. Who are the music acts? I saw them. It was Big Boy from Outcast, um, uh, DJ Stochastic, who is a multiple is he uh, a technician? podcast guest. What is he a technical <laughs> analyst? That's Jared DJ Dillon. Uh, oh, it's Jared Dillon. I didn't know that yeah. that was his DJ name. Oh, I love Jared. I'm, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing him soon. There's one that Ben. Who's the big one that Josh keeps talking about? They play in. They play in. Uh, arenas josh said, oh fits in the tantrums yeah right. that, yeah there it is. yeah i don't know who they are but they're gonna and be there. I, and i thought uh i thought um steve leesman's band was playing like the it's like a grateful dead cover band or i think something. they are anyway, yes uh, yeah. cool anyway it's gonna be a lot of fun map how many how many etfs are you at now we have 12 
Am I allowed to ask an ETF question? You can ask all you want. Okay. So, it's, so right. okay. I know you've always wanted to ask this, but it stands for exchange traded fund. Okay. All Not right, electronic so, funds transfer. Advisors don't ask me that anymore. It, it was five to 10 years ago. Like EFT was a common, like they're like, so what, like, what is, I don't get that anymore. They're mainstream now. That's like the Chipotle of financial comments. Before you ask the question, let me finish off with my future proof jokes. Um, so listeners, we're going to be there. The Cambria crew. Um, we have at least a, a, a booth, if not more. I think we should hold a, uh, have either of you guys surfed before? No, never. I've done the wakeboarding thing before. I saw a look of panic in Ben's, in Ben's eyes as I, as I said that. I wanted, I I've wanted this. to try. I've, I've done the skimboarding thing before, not broken any ankles. Right. So like, I would so try. You guys, are, you guys are in. Um, we, uh, I, I don't know what day, Sunday or Monday. We'll organize a, uh, a future-proof Cambria surf, learn to surf session. We'll hire some. Uh, That's we'll awesome. Hire I'm in. We'll hire some local, uh, some local guides and go out uh, as long as it's not enormous waves. Hopefully it's nice and mellow, but that could be fun. Not too early. I know. I mean, we early enough, but I'm not a morning person. And also my Denver Broncos are playing Monday night football. So I'm going to have to find a restaurant pub that's sympathetic to the Broncos somewhere and rent out a spot uh, as well. So uh, listeners hit us up. His listeners, by the way, is, is this sold out or is there still spots? How no, there's still, there, there's still spots. The attendance is, is we're, we've, well, I don't want to say numbers, but there's been a lot of people there. Hey, Meb. Is this the best division in football that we've seen in a long time, the AFC West? I think it'll be Dece. We'll see. Um, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, all, all you guys, I feel for you. It's, it's rough. You know, consistent Knicks, Jets, all these things in the Northeast. Um, so Broncos for me, this last cycle had been, you know, every year I'm optimistic and then disappointed. So now, now we got Russ. I'm, uh, it's back on the upswing. So I'm, uh, fingers crossed. We'll see. Uh, but it'll be fun. They, they got a couple games here in LA. I may go out to see the Raiders uh, play uh, the donkeys. So we'll see. It looks like a fun stadium. So listeners, if you're going to go, we'll be there. Uh, the Ritholtz crew is obviously going to be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, tons of advisors, that. tons of fintech people. It'll be, it's going to be fun. All right. So Meb, let me ask you this. So I've told you this before. Uh, I read your paper, probably not, actually definitely not in 2007. I probably read your paper in 2012, I'm guessing. And it made a lot of sense to me because I had been trading by myself and uh, was was finding it challenging, right? Guessing guessing which way a stock is going to go is not easy, and so the rules based nature of it really appealed to me. And in 2013 uh, or 14, we built a model that was very much uh, influenced, um, if not outright stolen, by by your paper. And I said to Josh, "Good, because I stole it from Charles Dow 100 years ago, so don't feel bad." <laughs> I said to Josh we should do this. I think we could do it. I think we could do it. Um, I think we should do it. And he said, I don't understand if this, if this actually works like the way that Meb says it doesn't, cause I had, I had reproduced the results as well. Uh, trust, but verify as a dude, let's, let's, let's go over it. Like, let's look at all of the data. And he said, if this really worked, why wouldn't everybody do it? And the answer that I gave him was it's not bullshitty enough, right? It's too simple. If this actually worked, it's tough to package, it's tough to sell, it's tough to distribute, convince, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask any quant, any investment bank, any research paper, there is probably, this is my opinion, there is probably no strategy or alternative um, allocation you can add to a traditional buy and hold portfolio that benefits all of the metrics, return, risk, correlation drawdown more than a trend following approach. Now, there's a million different ways to do it. You could do it managed futures. You could do it long short. You could do it long flat. doesn't matter. That's my opinion. There's nothing that'll benefit a traditional portfolio more. Hey, let's, I want to nerd out on trend for a minute because I've been thinking about this. So I learned a ton from like your original paper and stuff. You wrote Wes Gray and his team, Asnes and, and AQR helped a lot. Corey Hofstein. Do you think, and so the three of us have done a ton of back tests in our day. And obviously, we understand that back tests are for providing some context and probabilities and nuance, and it doesn't help you predict the future, but it can give you an idea of, of different risk parameters and ranges. Do you think the speed of the markets now has made trend following a, a different story? So I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I'm guessing. So in the last, call it whatever, 30 months, we had all-time highs into a 35% drawdown from all-time highs. Then the market doubled. Then now we're, we are back to 24 or 25% 
really quickly. So we've had two bear markets in less than three years. Does the speed of the markets because of the Fed and because of information and all this stuff, and obviously you can say, well, this is a one-off in the pandemic, but it does seem like markets are moving faster. Does that change how you view some of those back tests at all? Short answer is no. Um, the longer answer too is I think most traditional investors, not necessarily grouping in this, but but they think in terms of US stocks, bonds, maybe foreign stocks, but you know, most of the real trend followers they're doing managed futures trade 50, 100 markets. They're trading carbon credit futures. They're trading, and this is one of the benefits too, that one of the reasons they're having such an amazing year this year um, is don't forget they can short bonds too. And there's nothing else in your allocation that really is going to have that sort of exposure. You can rhyme with it with maybe commodities, usually in an inflation or unexpected inflation environment, commodities help. Well, that's what most original trend followers do, right? Commodities and bonds are the two main ones. It's all of it. No, it's all of it. And so um, so here's the problem with trend. And you can really talk about value the same way. You say, look, value works most of the time. It works over history, works in most markets. And it's a great strategy, particularly if you look at the flip side, what's a terrible strategy is buying really expensive stuff. Like that's a horrible idea. Um, but it doesn't work all the time. And it's the times that it doesn't work that makes it really hard to own it. Think, I don't know, the last 10 years, right? You know, last year, the three of us, February of 2021, shit was just going bananas. Like, I mean, what in the world? It was like, felt like 99 again in, in a different way. And so those are the times when people like, you know, Buffett's lost it, like value is terrible, right? So, so trend is similar in a different way. Trend usually works great in times of geopolitical stress and particularly long bear markets, 2000, 2003, 2008. And then it did F all for like a decade, right? And so trend following uh, is having an amazing 2022. You, you can go to a screen listeners, pull up like a ETF screener, go on Bloomberg. We did a poll the other day and, and look at what percentage of ETFs or funds are down in 2022. It's like 90% because stocks and bonds are down, right? Um, trend followers on average are having a monster year, but it was garbage probably for the last decade. And so the, the, the problem with trend is the career risk, the business risk, and that you look different, right? And so people really struggle with that. And so what people are seduced and try to do is they say, well, I want to be buy and hold, or I want to be trend. It's the same thing as like, I'm a gold miner, I'm a crypto, like they find their tribe, they find their narrative. And they get stuck in it. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance in financial advisors because we talk all the time too. It it's hard to get, especially since so many people came up on the in the last 10 or 15 years on the Bogle school from Vanguard, which you know, I consider myself like a Bogle head, but it's having the ability to see that like those two things could be complementary is really hard for some investors to wrap their minds around. Well, what we say is is uh Gene Fama and uh Bobby Schiller won the Nobel Prize the same year for diametrically opposed market views. And so Meb, like you, we think that they are, that there's room to to take the best of what they both do. And um, the thing that I would say that's so difficult about managed futures specifically for the individual investor is if you look under the hood, I remember I was listening to a webinar from one of these companies one time during the, the lean years, and a lot of the negative return came from shorting sugar or corn. You can't explain that to a normal person, right? You just you just can't. If they're like, well, well tell me what's going on. And so I agree with you. In theory, it is a great diversifier, but I don't think that people, and I would put certainly professional air quotes like in this category, can stick with a a strategy that can underperform for a decade. I just don't think they can. I agree. And so um, you just you just you're talking about U.S. stocks, right? To be clear, a strategy that can underperform by under a decade. Underperform U.S. stocks. So my point, my point is, so no, any asset, right? You can pull them up all day long. Stocks, bonds, gold, whatever goes through these, and even active managers go through periods where they underperform for decades. And so. But the unique thing about trend um, is you're different, right? Like it, like 60-40 this year is one of the worst years ever for 60-40. But the people who are managing 60-40 portfolios are not getting fired because everyone's doing 60-40, right? Like it's, you're part of the, the crowd and the well-accepted 
buy and hold beliefs. Now, every quant on the planet for the last five years has been saying this is one of the worst opportunity sets in history. Now, you hear the problem the last five years. It wasn't just like at the peak, right? They're saying it this year. I want the beta of trend. Like, I don't want the alpha. And so if you look at like the Sockgen index or the Barclays or any of these, like I just want, you could buy five of them. It doesn't even matter to me. Like buy a basket of them that gives you the broad Vanguard S&P of trend, really in my mind. And so- I think the other reason that the 60-40 managers are not getting fired this year is because as bad as 60-40 is, and I look at the numbers too, it's one, it was one of the worst six months periods for it ever. There's so much other stuff that people jumped into in the last five to seven years that is doing way worse. Like everyone became a stock picker. Everyone was into crypto, all this and all this other stuff, tech, whatever is getting hit way, way worse. So on a relative basis, you look at it and you go, hey, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think for the most part, if, if you can't survive a bull market, uh, specifically, Meb, to your point, a US bull market as a US investor, you're not going to stick with that strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, the challenge is, so as I was gonna say, if you if you like did a lie detector test and blinded the characteristics of a bunch of asset classes, like trend gets the highest on the optimizer almost always. And so um, the problem is you then reveal them and you're like, oh, well, I can't put half in that. That's crazy. Michael, that's not nearly as exciting as your wine tasting you did a couple weeks ago. Michael performed a wine tasting, blind taste test for our show, uh, right? To figure out if a $50 bottle is better than a $10 bottle. Here's the problem, Meb. He got two different kinds of wine. And oh, he did like a, a Chardonnay and a cab. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, See, so the, the sharp ratio on that uh, that fifty dollars one didn't, hey, Meb, didn't quite can, add up. Can I ask you about the Cape ratio? Because yeah, but you, hold on. Before we get you, into uh, that, I gotta ask. I gotta ask Ben about. I mean, he, you live in beer country. You're the best, like part of the best beer country in the world. Yes. You got a favorite from this part of the world? Well, I mean, the founders, it's seasonal. So yeah. in the summer, you have to drink Bell's Oberon with an orange. That is, yeah. that, that's the summer one. All day IPA is a good one if you're on the beach or on a- I thought you were a Pilsner guy. I thought you were only drank Pilsners. I uh, Mostly, but on, in the summer, I'll go out a little bit and, and change it up. But yeah, Grand, Grand Rapids, West Michigan area, yeah, is we got a lot of good beer. Every time I go to New York, I see the founders on tap yeah. in New York even. By the way, like this is some pretty uh, ninja level- hosting you guys are doing by somehow coming on my podcast and making me talk 90% of the time. Like how I like, I have, I haven't even, I have We're like 15 questions we haven't even got to. So All right, yes, fine. Let's, we, let's go through it. We, we can talk about no. Cape ratio. Like you want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. All right. So here's, so here's my thing on the Cape ratio. I think we would all agree that generally speaking, you would like to buy stocks when they're cheap, not expensive. Although again, it doesn't have to be binary. The problem that I have with Cape Ratio is that it has been rising for the last four decades, and we've been above the long-term average 95% of the time or whatever it has been. So, and I'm not saying that we should start in 1990, right? I'm just saying that like, should we start in 1820? And our structural components of it's so different today that it, it it's just worth questioning um, where, where, where companies are so much more capital efficient. Uh, profit margins are higher, you know, on the back of tech. Like, does it make sense to compare today's market with markets before the railroad even existed? There's a lot to unpack here. Cape ratio for listeners, 10-year PE ratio adjusted for inflation. I think the Cape ratio is actually meaningless. Um, you could use any valuation metric. They'll say the same thing at extremes. But I like to use Cape because it's got um, kind of a broad understanding. A couple points about this, you know, to me, the way that people want it to use the Cape ratio, I think, um, is to pick tops and bottoms in markets. That's the way they think it should work, but that's not the way that it works in my mind. Um, and so the fact that you didn't say this, but here's something I, I hear a lot. Let's say Meb, Cape ratio was 30, 25, whatever, on the expensive side, and it, the stock market went up 50% afterwards. Therefore, the Cape ratio doesn't work. And I said, and it goes up to PE ratio of 40, which is what we hit uh, at the peak of this cycle. I said, that's exactly how it works. That's a feature, not a bug. So price going up in the PE ratio increases the valuation. It's a claim on all future cash flows. The further it goes up, the lower your likely future returns are going to be. You're just mortgaging the future. You're taking returns in the future, bringing them in. And when it's low, same difference. So I say, guess what? You know, this sucker could go to 60 or 100. 
where Japan hit almost 100 in the 80s, right? Like that's entirely within the realm of possibility. That doesn't mean valuation doesn't work. It means all of a sudden you're having um, this massive bubble where things are getting more expensive and it's getting dumber and dumber and dumber to invest. I mean, we did a poll on Twitter where we said, do you invest in stocks? And everyone said, yes. Said, would you invest in stocks if the CAPE ratio hit 50? And most people said, yes. Uh, would you invest in stocks if CAPE ratio hit 100? And it was like a third still said yes, right? Higher than they've ever been in history in any stock market ever. Um, but what's funny, if you ask Bogle, and he kind of did this original formula where he talked about expected stock returns, there's a video we posted recently where he admits to it's a good idea to do valuation-based, essentially market timing. If you read his his last book he wrote, his like biography, he was a market timer. <laughs> In like 99, he sold a lot of his US stocks and put more into bonds. He went from like 50-50 to 70-30 or 30-70. He was a way better investor than people give him credit for. Templeton was too. And they have a simple thing. They were like, first thing you can do is you can just rebalance. So as the sucker keeps going up, you, you are continually selling it, right? So that makes sense. But you can also quote over rebalance. So if he's Bogle on this video is like, look, if you're 60-40 and stocks are trading P ratio of 40, uh, you can go maybe to 40-60. He's never like sell all your stocks, like, you know, timing it, but he's like, hey, you should adjust. That's common sense. If you put the US stock market into four buckets, cheap, expensive, and you can say above the long term average. So, CAPE ratio since the 90s, the average is like low 20s. Historically, it was like 18. But that also correlates to the fact that it was a low inflation environment. So, low inflation going back to 1900. CAPE ratio is allowed to be higher. High inflation CAPE ratio is like low teens, by the way. So if this sucker sticks around up at 8% inflation, not out of the question that you see that in the low teens, which is where it was at the end of the financial crisis, by the way. You had a CAPE ratio of like 12 in 09. So it's not without precedent. But um, in the 40s and the 70s, other times of high inflation, you had single digit P ratios. But if you go cheap, expensive, uptrend, downtrend, and we can put the charts links on our, our site. The best is cheap uptrend, no surprise. Um, but second best is expensive uptrend. So a market that's expensive, but continuing to go up. Now, the problem is it flips when it flips to the worst, which is right now is expensive downtrend. It's not a place you want to be, but it's still positive returns. It's like 2% nominal. So real, it's negative, but, but still it's not minus 20. You can add Fed in there too. So you can add the trend of interest rates and it, and it now has like whatever that is. 12 buckets or something. Um, but I think it's I think it's informative. Anyway, the whole point of valuation to me, it's all well and good to buy the cheap stuff. Great. But you're also avoiding the really expensive. So when you talk about career risks, there's nothing that's worse than something goes down like 80%, right? Like you don't, don't want that. Um, and so uh, I think I may have said this on Barry's podcast, but uh, we have an article about this, but it was like, Let's run through this mental example. 1993, Seth Klarman was talking about stocks being expensive, right? I said, let's say you use CAPE ratio and you got out just when it got expensive, not even really expensive, just above average. And you only got back in when it was below mm -hmm. average. I was like, you would have underperformed the market by like a thousand percent, like some enormous number. I said, however, most people always assume you just go into nothing. I said, what if you instead sat in bonds, right? You have to put the money somewhere. You would have done just fine. You almost kept up with stocks by moving to bonds in these period. Part of that's because bonds did amazing, right? But if you said there's a third choice, let's move into the rest of the world. So cheaper stock markets, you would have crushed the S&P, right? So just the mindset is really not about CAPE. It's about just finding value and avoiding growing. Now, you should know that Michael has retired from blogging about CAPE like six times. He's a Brett Favre of the CAPE ratio. He just can't quit it. Nothing generates more negative engagement than that. Um, I had, I had a, my God, I had one in January where people would just went fucking nuts. Um, and it actually had no opinion. It just stated like a stat and people went crazy. And the best part is because my bio doesn't mention that I, I'm an investor. It just mentions like books, podcasts, not my day job. And everyone's like, who are you going to listen to? Like this podcast host? Like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, anyway, but that's quiet now that stocks are down. 15 or 20 or whatever they are, it'll get really quiet when they're down 40 or 50. I, I got to ask you guys some questions, damn it, because I'm tired of talking. But speaking of, I was going to do a jumping off point now that we're talking about Twitter. Uh, you guys' most popular tweet, do you know what it is um, for either of you? By the way, uh, who do you think holds the crown for most popular tweets? I know the answer, Ben or Batnick. 
we both had some. I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. No idea. I don't the know. You answer, can even look this up. The answer has been well. So like you can do all sorts of like uh, advanced search in the Twitter bar. So if you say from, and by the way, the from thing is like the most useful because you can search a specific person, including your own timeline, because now you have a diary of all your tweets. But say from colon at a wealth of. Uh, well I bet it had to be some really, really dumb, sarcastic tweet I did. I'm sure it's oh, not they are. anything. Well, they are. And then you can say men underscore faves. And I did for you guys 5,000. because you. So what was it? Um, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you uh, both of you is most famous. And I'll just read a, a market related one because I think uh, I think your most famous or neither market related. Right. Ben's most famous with 24,000 likes was uh, I can't wait to cut the cord and simply subscribe to. Netflix, Disney, Apple, Prime Video, HBO, on and on and on. Uh, <laughs> okay. A little snarky tweet. This will finally help me reach my goal of becoming. Twitter is so dumb. It's not even a good tweet. Uh, <laughs> it's a great. I think it's it was a great ha- tweet. It was ahead of the game. It was, it was before it was funny. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, this is two, three years ago. So timely. Let's do a recent one. You had a recent one that, that did well, June 13th. The Fed needs to raise rates as quickly as possible to tame inflation by sending us into a recession where they can then cut rates to save, save us from recession. Ah, and I think okay. that's great. Like the macro commentary you hear in the day to days is like, it just makes your head spin. It's always so negative, but I, I, it's sneaky funny, guys. Um, and we'll go over to Batnick, who's not as popular, but uh, his number one was. Was it the pie chart? No, that's up there, though. The market cap uh, is a good one. Did you have to type? Oh, okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll link to that one too. Number one was um, Feb 2021, height of the mania. Quote, Charlie Munger doesn't get it from Nicholas 22, owner of <laughs> 0.19 shares of Tesla. <laughs> that's not and that's funny because at the time, like that was the, na- like people that you probably got a lot of hate on that one. I am getting very disillusioned with Twitter. I am. I, I just, I, I hate it. It sounds like you're just mad that Ben has slightly more popular tweets. Uh, and then you had uh, another good one. Anytime you bring the, the Bitcoiners out, Berkshire has 145 billion, 600 million in cash, zero in Bitcoin. That was a good one. <laughs> Here's the thing that I've realized with Twitter, though, because obviously, Map, you've had the replies to from people that just just get you so worked up or whatever you see them, or they're either negative or they take what you say out of context. I honestly think having children has made me just care so little about what other people think about me that I it's easy for me to mute or block or ignore now. Whereas in the past, when we first started this, it would like ruin my day to see someone say something mean about me or, hey, you were wrong. You're an idiot. Now, I, I honestly really don't care unless I truly value that person's opinion. Yeah. You know, I, children may be it. And it may also just be practice. Like you've had this slap like a thousand times at this point. And we actually, I started keeping a document recently called Meb Haterade. And it's a lot of like the really, you know, mean, mean girl tweets over the years uh, or or emails or comments. Um, And, uh, and it's, you look back at them and I'm like, most of these are actually pretty funny. Like I went on CNBC the other day, Batnick will appreciate this, where they were like, uh, have fun losing money in your hairline. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's like, that's kinda, that's pretty good yeah no that's that sort of that sort of stuff doesn't bother me when they're like uh like uh making fun of how you look like whatever that is what it is but uh it just it's gotten very mean-spirited and t- what twitter rewards these days is dunking and threads and both of those things are, are gross to me so eh, yeah. threads aren't gross i just that's well, whatever. It's just but you also like this is and this is a classic as we talk about content earlier as we talk about reach and you know growing your business you know you talk to mm-hmm. any um, celebrity like you guys with a ton of followers and you know it's a double-edged sword right like you um you start to get to a certain level and i think naval was talking about this and he's like the twitter experience with very few followers versus a lot is like totally different so like what elon Musk sees or some of these people with millions of followers is a very different experience i made the mistake a couple weeks ago of doing a stupid sarcastic reply to one of elon musk's tweets and i know why he thinks there's so many bots because I replied to it and I shouldn't have done it. And I got a hundred bots replying to me on his. I'll never turn into a fortune cookie uh, life hack tweeter. Um, I just like, uh, I, I, it, it used to be, it, listen, I'm not complaining because Twitter has been a wonderful blessing for me and my career and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but absolutely the experience has changed for me. I'm, I'm afraid to, uh, I'm afraid to tweet. <laughs> yeah. The um... I'm afraid. Damn it. That was my Sylvester Stallone impression of Rocky, uh, Rocky three. Ben, it's funny. Cause like, uh, I commented on a thread the other day uh, about a year ago. Um, we mentioned a, 
I got, there's an Instagram ad that I had that was like a financial marketing. I was like, this is clearly a fraud. And I tweeted it and everyone's like, yes, this is clearly a fraud. And I was like, you know, I thought this is just some, you know, dude in Croatia or Guam or something, just like, you know, trying to do some scam. It was Seth Klarman. It was, <laughs> it, it was a $250 million fraud based out of Texas. And it got bust, busted like a week later. Um, so far, no whistleblower cash coming my way. But uh, we've, we've actually reported two billion dollar plus ones uh, that the SEC declined to uh, to whatever you call it. Um, I, I wrote a book about financial scams that no one really read, but it boggles my mind how many people I just heard a story the other day about my mother received a text message saying, go enter your information here, but don't call anyone because if you call someone about it, they will have your information. And of course, it was a, it was like a it was like a crypto scam and they stole like thirty thousand dollars from her. And then that night she's like, you know, wait a minute. I think actually the reason they told me not to call anyone or contact my bank is because this was a scam. Oh, are you sure? Like you'd think the, the amount of information we have would make it easier for people to see through that kind of stuff. And it, it only makes it harder in some ways. I mean, so we have, we have a compliance program that sends us, it's actually obnoxious, but we get like two fake emails a day and they're usually pretty obvious, but some of them are actually like getting to be like pretty good. But there was one that Ramit Sethi tweeted the other day it was Ty Lopez. Um, and I don't know Ty Lopez from anyone, but um, it's an Instagram ad and I'm going to read it. We can post it, but it says, do you want a deal that pays 3000 per month on a 200 K investment with equity upside? And there's variants of it with the different numbers, but it's basically, it says, do you want 20 K dividends per year, prefer dividends um, with this investment? And I'm like, you, you definitely can't say that. Like that's not. And then, so I, onboarded and I called and I talked to, I don't want to say one of the dumbest people ever, but a, a particularly not bright salesperson. And I kept asking questions. I was like, so you guys guarantee like 20% dividends? Like, can you send me like a fact sheet or like some docs? And they're like, we require an NDA. And I was like, what? Why? That doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I'm not signing an NDA. Uh, I was like, how's this work? Do you have some historical results? He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you're advertising 20% dividends. Like, can you like demonstrate that you send out? He goes, well, he's like, well, it's up to 20% dividends. And I'm like, well, so it could be zero. Like it doesn't say that in the ad. So anyway, I'm, but I, but so now that I like liked or commented on the ad, I now get it everywhere, <laughs> yeah. everywhere, all day long. I see Ty Lopez ads for 20% yeah. dividends. So SEC, if you're listening, I expect Sounds to not legit. see this come August, come future proof. We won't be seeing this. All right. Questions for you guys. Hour two, we now need to ask you guys questions. What is an investment belief that you guys hold? I have a whole thread of mine. We're up to almost 20 now um, that the vast majority of your peers do not hold. So 75%. So if you said this, you're like, okay, no one, no one of at future proof, they vote. They'd be like, no one agrees with me on this. So I have a whole slew. Ooh, 75. That's tough. That's a high hmm. hurdle rate. Tell you what, I'll read. I'll read a couple of mine while you guys think. Okay. I got to go find it though. Hold on. I mean, I don't know if seventy-five, but how about this? People at Future Proof, I'd say seventy-five percent of the audience might disagree with this. I still believe that cryptocurrencies, um, uh, whether it's DeFi or whatever, will have a bigger impact on the future than people think. I'm not. I don't know where the, where the prices are going, but I do. I do think that the use cases that are in, in inconceivable right now and completely ludicrous and silly and dumb. I think I think there is a there there. I bet you're right that there's 75% of people are skeptic at this point. Yeah. About that. Yeah. And do you think that's just the mood right now with a lot of the the kind of um exchanges, brokerages, scams on the periphery? More than anything, crypto is it makes way more sense where the prices are up than it does when they're down. You could say that about the stock market in some ways. But I, I know some people who think the stock market becomes more exciting when it falls. I don't think many people think that about crypto. It almost has to have half higher Well, because prices. at this point, especially Bitcoin, it is a faith-based asset. It doesn't really do a whole lot. So it makes a lot more sense. You get a lot more positive feedback uh, when it's going up versus when it's falling, obviously. How about this? Uh, My hot take on investing, this is more of a hot take than it is a true investment belief. I think that like 80% of the most legendary investors were right place, right time, because 
we we have not seen anyone come close to approaching some of the returns that like Marx or Buffett or some of those people had in their day in the last like 10 to 20 years. The the only people who who have had ridiculous returns have been in something like crypto. And that was essentially a lottery ticket. You know, this applies to just the stock market, too. And, um, you know, starting date, ending date, right? Like the very different experiences people have. Like, again, you guys love to talk about now do Japan. But if you go talk to Japanese over the past couple of decades, like buy and hold investing, it's like, it's not a thing, right? Like they don't think that way. So I've yet to hear a good explanation from people beyond the fact that they just have a high savings rate and they need people to take care of their families of what, would, if the US stock market went nowhere for 30 years, would you not think that everything is in ruins? Like the Japanese economy and the people and the unemployment rate still low is still doing just fine. I need like a really long profile written on how they could have such awful returns in the stock market and still seemingly everyone's doing fine. Part of it is like rubber band, right? So they hit this CAPE ratio, bringing it back almost 100 and biggest bubble we've ever seen in any market. Like we've seen a few others that have gotten to like the 50, 60 level, but nothing approaching Japan, which is also the largest stock market in the world at that time. And so part of it was just never real, right? Like it's just this paper wealth, like a lot of you know, uh, private equity investments over the past few years, it just got too high that it came back down, right? Part of it, I think, is this distinction between the real world economy and like a financial markets. And so a lot of the discussion in the past few years is talking about like net average household net worth relative to GDP and some of these metrics that, um, you know, if you're market based and you have exposure and I think you guys have talked about this, like you go back to the 1920s, like no one owned stocks, really. It was like 1% of the population during the Great Depression. It was a very small amount of the people in the country. And so I think the question is, and this applies to the business versus stocks too. Like you go back to 2000 and you look at some of the companies like Cisco, Microsoft, and their business over 20 years, like did amazing. And the stocks often went nowhere because the stock just got too expensive. But so I think the same thing applies, like there's the economy and then there's just financial assets. And, and for many people too, like it, it, yes, is it a drag, but a lot of people would be like, it doesn't even, doesn't even break a sweat. True. Well, yeah, I guess you could say in America, 90% of the stocks are held by 10% of the population. So it, it really just impacts one group of people, the largest. Yeah, that's probably the best thing you can do to narrow the wealth and income gap is just have a nice 80% decline. How do you have a list of 20 beliefs? You mu- I, I don't know, you must have thought long and hard about this. Is this a blog post? No, it's a um All right, you're going to have to turn this into a blog post for us. It's a lifestyle. Well, I tell you what else came up when I was trying to find it was what do you think the single number one most universally held investment belief by professional investors is? Buy low, sell high. <laughs> that's pretty good. Ben, you got anything? I don't, most professional investors I've dealt with think that they can outperform the market. Oh, really? That's interesting. That's if we're talking one. investment managers. Yeah, it's a weird, like, that's a weird, like, you know, it'd be a fun podcast would be like the lie detector podcast is like, mm. you like plug people in and be like, all right, I'm going to ask you some questions. And it, it might have to be anonymous, like the voice box and the, the um, um, get like economic, you know, like behind a screen. How much of your net worth do you really have in index funds, even though you run a actively managed mutual fund? Yeah. And then like ask some questions, like, do you really believe X, Y, Z? And like, I think a lot of people like the answers would be uh, surprising. What's everybody talking about your shop now? What's uh, what are your clients? What's on their mind? What's uh, on your mind? What are you guys working on? You got any new books coming out? You got uh, Ben, your six more blog posts this week. What are you writing about? What uh, what's what's going on? Interesting in your world. You know what I think is coming? I think that we're going to hear, and I saw one article written about it, but I think it's, I think it's coming. The unwind in the private markets. I think you're going to start seeing a lot more stories of CEOs that cashed out in early 2021, where, where the companies are now out of cash. Uh, okay. So they sold a piece of their business and they cashed out and now their business is in trouble. And there's, I can see that. I saw a headline today that there was a, that one Tiger-backed company that raised at a $3 billion valuation is now out of cash, uh, aka they're, they're, they're done. I think you're going to see more articles coming out about that, but where CEOs sold. That's a pretty good call because there, I think there was a lot of crazy stuff going on in VC startup land where people were just doing anything they could to get into certain deals. Yeah, that's a pretty good call. How about a boring take? Bonds are going to become more exciting for people. If you can just earn... 3% on something really safe, 
if you could just lock in negative five, well, I think people are going to just there's eventually the big institutions are going to say, what are we doing here? We can just get 3% on this in short term bonds. Let's move some of our money there for the time being. And I think people are going to start getting a little more risk averse after we saw this huge explosion in risk for two years. Risk taking. Bonds are interesting. I wrote a tweet the other day where I was like, you know, who has the nuts? Who's got the cojones to go out and buy zero coupon bonds right now, which are in a historic, it's like 50% drawdown. Um, if you look historically, bonds, 10 year, 30 year are near max drawdowns for the past, whatever, 120 years. That's a hard trade to probably want to put on, you know, because um, it's betting on, I mean, it feels a little more reasonable now than it did a few weeks ago, but a couple of months ago, commodities, and everything was just going nuts. And like thinking about interest rates coming down was very anti-consensus. Now you're hearing the recession talk and a lot more kind of worry about growth. And I think that it feels a little more comforting, but um, think about that possibility. Yeah. I think bonds, uh, that's, that's a good one. What else is on the brain guys? What are you excited about before I start asking about movies and books, your favorite? You know, let's just, let's just, let's just talk about movies for a second. Unless, Ben, do you have anything else? No. So I saw a movie last night that, uh, Ben, I'll probably repeat this story on Animal Spirits because our audience will like it. Ben often says that I don't like coming-of-age movies. And I think that's probably mostly true, although I would have to fact-check myself there. I saw a movie last night that I haven't seen since it came out. I was six years old. Made no sense for me to watch it at six years old. But it was a coming-of-middle-age. City (laughs) Slickers. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. City Slickers, 1991, Billy Crystal is which is hard to picture now cuz uh just whatever. He was one of the biggest one of the biggest most bankable stars in the world. The first 60% of that movie was incredible. There's a lot of fat at the end, it made no sense, but that was good. I totally it was just it was just three three guys, they're like turning 40 and they're like shit. I'm never going to look this good. I'm never going to feel as good. I'm never going to, you know, my, 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 my income is maxing out and it's like a midlife crisis, a little bit early to have a midlife crisis, but I'll tell you what, at my age, it it made a lot more sense to watch it at at 37 than at six. And you know, it was fun. The movie was fun. It's very watchable. Have you done this yet? Uh, Bad Nick, you, you hit the horse trail yet. We kind of did this during the pandemic. We hit the road. We spent a lot of time in Wyoming and, uh, and Montana. No, but it felt real bad on the on the podcast this week. Ben and I were talking about um, like stages of life where you spend the most time with your partner, your kids, your your friends, whatever. And uh, I don't know. I've just been thinking about life and and the meaning of it and living it. And that movie hit hit at a good time. Having kids makes you so much more sentimental, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I am so much more sappy than I was before pre kids. Yeah, yeah. My sister in law has a great story. They're from LA. This is a very LA moment, but they have a story where they were at a movie. I'm blanking on the movie and she was young. So I don't know, four, five, whatever age. And no comment on their parents taking them to this movie, which was clearly inappropriate, but there was sex scene. And, and she at one point blurts out during the movie, she goes just like, mommy, they're humping. And the entire audience starts laughing <laughs> and directly in front of them, Man turns around and he's like, wow, that's a precocious child, Billy Crystal, in the theater in front of them. So <laughs> very, very LA moment. Pretty good. Ben, what are you watching? I got a book for you guys. It's called How the World Really Works. I can't remember that someone, one of the podcast listeners gave this to me. And it's interesting for this year because it's all about the importance of a lot of people, especially with the ESG stuff and climate change and all this stuff are saying how fossil fuels are just the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And this, this book makes the point that fossil fuels are one of the biggest reasons that we had so much progress in the last 100, 150 years. And it's, it's almost weird that it's a contrarian take. And obviously the, it, it looks at both sides of this, but it also just shows how without some of this stuff with electricity and, and oil and gas and stuff, we never would have, it, it shows how how much easier it is to work a farm these days because of the machinery and how few man hours it actually takes to actually produce the stuff that gets to our grocery stores. It's, it's very interesting. I think it's almost like a contrarian take at this point, but I'm someone who is not handy at all, but just listening to like how this stuff works and how stuff gets built and how stuff moves around the world. I think the pandemic has reminded us how important that whole behind the scenes thing is of supply chains and, and materials and commodities and all that stuff. It's a pretty good book. 
We did a, uh, a podcast recently with an author of Oceans of Grain, a professor from University of Georgia, but he's basically talking about the role wheat had played in history and kind of shaping a lot of trade, uh, you know, the rise and fall of empires and, and continuing to this day, obviously with the Russia, Ukraine mess and everything that uh, Europe is going through and, and the stresses it causes, you know, ag prices and ag, you know, with the Middle East and Africa and other places, Arab Spring. Um, but the energy one, man, um, you talk to people in Europe and, uh, you know, we get people in the, in the Twitter replies are talking about, they're like, you know, my gas bill went from a thousand to 5,000, you know, or things right. where they're like, this is like insane. And, um, the narrative of like nuclear and not uh, on bringing this back to the ETF space. I was, uh, when I think Van Eck was the coal ETF, they closed it. I was like, Jan, I would have taken it over, send it my way, man. And so I was joking to the team the other day. I was like, we should launch a coal ETF with the exact same ticker. <laughs> just, just put it right back out there. Because people forget the beauty of ETFs. It's not just that you can gain the exposure from the long, but if you don't like it and you don't want it, you can short it too. So if you're an ESG, you know, you're like, I don't want coal in my portfolio. I'm going to short this sucker. It gives you that choice. Whereas otherwise, uh, you don't have it. Um. I don't have anything for you guys. I started watching a, a show that's kind of a black mirror love, death, and robots. Have you guys heard of this? <clears throat> What's that on? Um, uh, I don't know. Um, okay. We uh, we have no TV connections at my house because we've been renovating and I'm finally home. And that's kind of been pleasant. I've had no TV for like six months, so kind of enjoyed it. I'm not sure I want to go back, um, but uh, it's, it's like a black mirror-esque sort of show. It's good, though. Gentlemen. Um, I'm excited to see you in the real world. Yeah, likewise. Proof, uh, listeners, go sign Can't up wait. for the conference. Uh, ben and Batnick promised they would buy you two beers each if you mention the Meb Faber show, um, and they will hold. It's not an IPA. I, I'm not. I'm not an IPA guy. So sorry. I'm not going to enter. No, I've IPA. moved away. I loved IPAs. They give me the worst hangovers, and I, I, I kind of moved back to Pilsners or Hoppy uh, Hoppy Pilsners. I could drink like a session IPA or pale ale, but it's rough at this. I don't know why, why would I was ever attracted to is IPAs, IPA revolt. Um, so the Bayou two beers, not IPAs. Um, they will go surfing with you. So we'll figure out what morning, Sunday or Monday, probably. And then you have to all cheer for the Broncos. I was going to wear my new whale shirt today, but it's packed away, sadly. My daughter had soccer camp today and I bought her one of our new whale t-shirts and she had to wear blue. That was like her team's color today for soccer camp. And I told her to put just here the only blue shirt you have. She's like, Dad, I can't wear your merch. Everyone's gonna make fun of me. <laughs> your <laughs> merch is gonna be great when you guys eventually become the, like the life is good company. But for uh, for merchandise, so I asked you guys a few years like how this clothing business gets started. This is yeah. where we made it. Just animals for kids. All right. So future proof. If uh, animal spirits podcast, go take it to yep. listen. And if they want to talk to you about y'all's day job, what, what's the website? Where do they go for that? Ritholtzwealth.com. That's right. Gentlemen, uh, it's been a blast. Thanks for joining today. Thank you, Matt. This is awesome. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. (laughs) 